Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 330, The Doolittle Raid, Part 1. Perception is reality, and the Americans perceived, or rather knew, they had just been sucker-punched at Pearl Harbor. Oh, everyone knew war was coming between the Empire of Japan and the United States. It was just a matter of where, when, and how. Still, a sucker punch? No, this demanded payback, but tenfold. For what it's worth, and it's not worth much, the Japanese did not intend to strike before they declared war. But as the Japanese ambassadors suffered delays in getting the official message from Tokyo to Secretary of State Cordell Hull's office, that's the way it worked out. The attack preceded the declaration. As the Pacific reports poured into the Oval Office, all of them bad and only got worse, the nation was frozen in fear. Was California or Alaska next? But the other side of that coin was anger or more exactly, hatred. We hate what we fear. Again, everyone knew war was coming. The U.S. Congress had voted through a naval expansion in the mid to late 1930s in preparation for that war. But that was now offset by the destroyed or heavily damaged battleships at Pearl Harbor. No, whatever or however America was going to react, it would not be through her battleships. But as the American public was still reeling over the surprise attack, the Japanese military did not stop at Pearl. No, that was only the beginning. As we have seen, various islands and European-controlled territories in Southeast Asia were gobbled up by the Empire, the new masters. And FDR knew that with each loss or defeat, America's morale would sink even lower. Still, some of those in Washington pushed past their fear, and began to think, okay, but what comes next? One such man was Admiral Ernest J. King, recently promoted to Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Fleet, or Sinkus. When said out loud, that sounds like Sink Us. King would alter that title when he was also made the Chief of Naval Operations, thus making him the most powerful admiral in the Navy. Though the rest of December, including Christmas and New Year's, only continued to bring bad news, Admiral King kept returning to the idea of striking back at the Japanese. Even before the Arcadia Conference was over, that is, the coming together of America's and Britain's military and civilian leadership to work out a strategy to win the war, which ended on January 14th, King accepted his limited options in hitting the Japanese, as Germany was deemed enemy number one. Italy would fall in due course, and then the Japanese. Still, King would never stop being a champion of sending supplies to the Pacific Theater. Some of the other decisions reached at Arcadia, but were kept secret, was the Europe First strategy, the creation of the Combined Chiefs of Staff to be based in Washington the principle of unity of command of each theater under a supreme commander, finding a way to keep China in the war, and lastly, which affected King's desire for revenge the most, the limiting of reinforcements for the Pacific. Admiral King would play his part in winning the war and has to be considered one of the more valuable assets of President Roosevelt. Still, 
he had his negatives. Though he was intelligent and ambitious, he was routinely unfaithful to his wife. He could drink more than any of his young sailors, and he had a temper that visibly aged the men who worked under him. The point is, though he accepted the dictates of the Arcadia Conference, his mind, driven by his aggressive personality, kept revisiting a way to hit back at the Japanese. As he told his fellow senior military leaders, no fighter ever won his fight by covering up, by merely fending off the other fellow's blows. And FDR was of the same mind, but for different reasons. Yes, all of his isolationist opposition had disappeared overnight with the attack on Pearl, but the U.S. was far from ready to go on the offensive, either against the Germans, the Italians, or the Japanese. Within a matter of days after Pearl, the U.S. went from being an undeclared belligerent to having a two-front war. This was going to take time. But being a politician, the question was, what could be done to raise the spirits of the American people, of their allies across the Atlantic and Pacific, and more directly, what could strike fear into the hearts of their enemies, to let them know no one, no location was free from attack, no matter how far away. Basically, another Pearl Harbor, but with the tables reversed. So the president started scouring his maps. Could an airstrike against a Japanese territory be launched from China? Perhaps, but as the Japanese had been taking more and more of China's coastal territory, it got trickier to say yes to that as each day went by. What about Guam or Wake or the Philippines? But as January rolled around, those places were taken off of the list by Japanese invasions. What about from Russian territory, as the Americans, British, and the people of Soviet Russia were now all in the same boat? But Stalin would quickly say no to this, as he had a Soviet-Japanese neutrality pact signed in April of 1941 in his hands, and that he would not give up, as he and his were barely holding out against the opening phase of Operation Barbarossa. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 
General Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, tried to mollify FDR's anger by telling him many Army pilots, retired or currently serving, were signing up with Colonel Claire Chenault to fly fighters against the Japanese in China. But FDR remained adamant. He wanted action. He knew it would be some time before a major engagement, a chance for the Americans to strike a devastating blow against the enemy, but he wanted something now, a gesture. He wanted the Japanese to feel what the Americans had felt after Pearl. Shock, fear, humiliation, and he wanted it against Japan proper. He wanted Tokyo to know the real meaning of war. Which brings us to Admiral King's Chief of Staff, Captain Francis Lowe, age 47. He and his superiors, hell, even the president himself, were racking their brains on how to strike at Japan's capital. In the end, it was assumed by most, but not by all, that it would have to be a naval aircraft launched from one of the three remaining carriers in the Pacific. Of course, being naval aircraft, they would have to get rather close to Honshu, the largest of Japan's four main islands, and that would put that carrier at risk, which was hard to justify, seeing as they were the only offensive weapons, besides the submarines, and their torpedoes were still working out the issues that the Americans had in the Pacific at the moment. Back to Captain Lowe, on January 10, 1942, a Saturday, Admiral King returned to his flagship, the 333-foot steel-hulled yacht, the Vixen, in the Anacostia River at the Washington Naval Yard. He had come from an Arcadia meeting, but still had a pile of paperwork that needed his attention. That's when Lowe walked into the Admiral's office. Clearly, he was apprehensive. Lowe's nickname was Frog, which he had got from being the captain of the Naval Academy's swim team. Everyone there had a nickname. King's was Dolly, due to his rosy cheeks. But over the years, he tried to get people to call him Ray, R-E-Y, as that is the Spanish word for King. No, King was not humble. I'm not sure if Ray caught on, but there were plenty of other names the Admiral was called behind his back. In truth, King was hard, and at times enjoyed being hard, as he chose to be feared rather than loved. But he was fair and had an eye for talent, which is why Lowe was his chief of staff. Indeed, these two men had already cleared the air between them, as King had tore into Lowe when they were on the battleship Texas the year before. After the screaming, by King, that probably removed some of the paint off the bridge, he apologized to Lowe. Lowe's reply earned King's respect. Admiral, aside from asking for my immediate detachment, there is not one goddamn thing that you can do to me that I can't take, which allowed the following conversation to take place. Lowe said, I've been to the Norfolk Yard, as you know, sir, to see the progress made on the Hornet, the USS Hornet, launched in December of 1940 and commissioned in October of 1941, was the largest and last of the Yorktown carrier class. And her size was only possible because Japan had backed out of the Naval Limitations Treaty with the U.S. and Great Britain. 
She was to join the Saratoga, Enterprise, Lexington, and Yorktown in the Pacific. Indeed, she would be getting underway by the time the raid was to take place. Lowe continued, At the airfield, they have marked out a strip about the size of a carrier deck, and they practice takeoffs constantly. Confused by this, King said, Well, that's a routine operation for training carrier-based pilots. King did not like to have his time wasted with the obvious. Further, he had already floated an idea of using a carrier to deliver land-based planes to North Africa for the Allied offensive being planned for there. But Lowe was about to take that idea in a different direction. Lowe continued, If the Army had some planes that could take off in that short a distance, I mean a plane capable of carrying a bomb load, why couldn't we put a few of them on a carrier and bomb the mainland of Japan? Might even bomb Tokyo. After this, Lowe went silent and half expected a bomb to go off right in this office. Instead, King leaned back in his chair, instantly liking the possibility. But was it possible? King told Lowe to run it by Captain Donald Duncan, King's air operations officer. His nickname was Wu, which stuck with him even now. Like King, he was a pilot and had flown on the Saratoga, and his sister, until she died in 1937, had been married to Harry Hopkins, FDR's right-hand man. So, competent and politically connected, that's how things get done. Lowe called up Duncan and said, How would you like to plan a carrier-based strike against Tokyo? Lowe then passed on the seed of the idea, and Duncan started shaping it into reality. But there were problems. First, a land-based bomber could not land on a carrier, for several reasons. So, no round trips for the pilots. No, they would have to take off from the carrier, which was theoretically possible, but after dropping their bomb loads, it would be best if they continued flying west to make for China. Next, as the Japanese had air patrols that covered 300 miles off of their mainland coast, a plane with bombs would have to take off beyond that point to carry out the bombing and then fly to China. Duncan estimated that the bombers would have to take off between 400 and 650 miles away from Honshu. Then came selecting which plane. A Martin B-26? No, Duncan doubted that it could take off full of fuel, probably with additional fuel, and bombs from the carrier's deck. What about the B-23? Again, no, its wingspan was such that it might hit the carrier's superstructure on takeoff. All this led Duncan to choosing the North American B-25, Its wing length was short enough to get past the superstructure, and even with extra fuel added, it should be able to take off with a load of bombs. As for when the bombers should take off, Duncan thought it through and deemed it would be best for the army planes to take off at dusk, which would have them making their bomb raid at night and landing in China at dawn. Later, General Hap Arnold the chief of the Army Air Force, would bring in Lieutenant Colonel James H. Doolittle into the plan and get the crews ready. Speaking of Doolittle, he would push for the idea of purposefully avoiding 
the emperor's palace. This strike was to instill fear into the enemy, not to enrage them to the point that fear was impossible, and he would get his way. Lastly, after reviewing Japanese weather, Duncan found that April was the best time to launch the attack. All this was typed up and put on Admiral King's desk, of which he approved. Now King ordered Duncan to take it to General Hap Arnold to get his approval, and this occurred on January 17th. Arnold gave it the green light and selected Doolittle to start thinking about specific crewmen for the mission. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It has been said of Doolittle that he accomplished more in less time than his contemporaries or superiors. Getting his wings in March of 1918, he became a test pilot. He had learned from the Wright brothers themselves. He taught himself aerobatics. He helped Brigadier General Billy Mitchell sink a battleship in 1921 to show the Navy that no, battleships were a thing of the past. He set a world speed record. He flew across the United States in under 24 hours. He got a doctorate in aeronautical engineering from MIT. And lastly, he developed instrument flying and proved it would work by taking off, flying, and landing a plane that had its cockpit completely covered. This was in 1929. And Doolittle wasn't about to waste time now with this mission. Just days later, January 23rd, he sent a B-25 to Mid-Continent Airlines in Minneapolis, Minnesota to modify the plane, as it was too heavy to guarantee a successful takeoff full of fuel and bombs. The engineers there added new fuel bladders, bomb shackles, and cameras. To compensate, out came the ventral gun turret, the 230-pound radio. After all, this was to be a silent mission. And lastly, the $10,000 apiece high-altitude Norden bombsite. After all, it was deemed best to make a low bomb run to help with accuracy and avoid AA fire. Put aboard the planes, in all, there would be 24. There was now a 20-cent bomb site called the Mark Twain. At this point, the third week of January, only General Arnold, Admiral King, Captain Duncan, and Colonel Doolittle knew of the plan. But on the 28th, Arnold went to FDR and gave him the basic concept. The president approved without knowing the full details. Those he would get only after the raid was carried out. On the last day of January, Chief of the Army Air Force Combat Command, General Carl A. Spatz, handed over to Doolittle 
specific maps and targets. Now that much of the plan was coming together, it was time to get down to brass tacks. First, could the B-25s really take off from the Hornet? The distance was marked out and the crews got to work, practicing takeoff after takeoff. By February 2nd, it was proven doable. With that done, it was decided that each plane of the mission, and the exact number was still being worked out, would carry a combination of 500-pound M43 demolition bombs and 554 incendiary cluster bombs, each one holding 128 four-pound bomblets. During this time, Doolittle had been selecting his crew. They would all come from, as did the planes, the 17th Bomber Group. The group was in South Carolina, and from it, the 24 crews that Doolittle wanted were selected. With this done, he took them all to Eglin Field in Florida for intensive training. On March 1st, Doolittle told the men that they were going to bomb Japan. This made them excited, but then their commander told them that only 15 of the 24 crews would be making the actual flight. The rest, they were here to act as a replacement, if needed. Nothing could be allowed to throw off the vital timetable, which meant they were all going to go with him on the Hornet, whether they flew or not. Besides, security demanded that these men, who now knew the target, stay together. With that, the training got underway, but it would be more than just that. The men were trying to see who would actually be in on the mission and who would lead it, as Hap Arnold was convinced that the 45-year-old Doolittle was too old to participate. Now, pilots are a special breed, and that's putting it mildly. But Doolittle pushed these men to the edge for a solid month. First, they had to learn to take off with a 31,000-pound B-25 from a carrier deck, nerve-wracking, to say the least. Then they were drilled on low-altitude bombing, followed by cross-country flying, as their mission would have them flying just over 2,200 miles, or 3,600 kilometers. This was followed up by night navigation and gunnery practice. This last part was, hopefully, not going to be needed. When their modified B-25Bs showed up, the pilots had to put them through the ringer to see what they could do, but also to learn each plane to test and retain its capabilities. With this done, it was down to creating and learning each and every trick to maximize fuel retention for the long trip. During this month, the Navy was still striving to fulfill its part of the plan. The Hornet would leave Norfolk, Virginia, travel through the Panama Canal, and make for Alameda, California. There, it would pick up the crews still training, and then head out into the Pacific. But Admiral Chester Nimitz, who had replaced Admiral Husband Kimmel as Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet, when he was briefed by Captain Duncan on March 19th, determined that the Hornet, now designated Task Force 18, would be too vulnerable during its voyage. Thus, he ordered another carrier task force, TF-16, this one under Admiral Halsey, to meet up with and shield Doolittle's men and planes. 
The two carriers were to get into position, launch the Doolittle Raiders, and dash back to Pearl, knowing a hornet's nest was about to be kicked open. And the most excited person was Colonel Doolittle himself. As he distrusted phones, he went to Hap Arnold himself and convinced the Chief of Army Air Force to let him lead his men during this special aviation project number one. Postscript. The U.S. military branches were so desperate after Pearl Harbor to bring in men that they lowered the standards of entry. Indeed, the Navy, which would be paramount in the Pacific, cut the standard for applicants' eyesight, height, and teeth. Now, as long as you had 18 teeth and at least two molars, you were eligible. And just before the British arrived for the Arcadia Conference, and I mean just hours before, FDR found out that his War Council staff had not been taking minutes of their meetings. The meetings about the tension with the Japanese and their meeting with the Japanese that had been going on for months. This would be rectified, of course, but until then, the Americans would just have to wing it. The British found out anyways, which did nothing to increase their respect for their comrades' military capability. So the last thing the Brits wanted was to have any of their troops under American command. The Americans felt the same way about the British.